So Psalm 34, if you turn there in your Bibles. The Whidbey Island Women's Clinic, they're having their spring banquet, 2024 spring banquet. I just like the sound of spring. But uh, spring banquet, Friday, March 15th, 6 o'clock, and it will be at the Church of the Nazarene. So, um, you know, if you'd like to go to that, it's uh, RSVP required. And uh, we have some information. And, of course, you could always contact the center, and they could give you further information. And then, um, as of today, we have Alan from, you might remember him from last year, um, from Chosen People Ministry. So he'll be here in a couple of weeks on the 21st, so February 21st. And he's going to be speaking on Israel's glorious future. And so it's going to be great. We enjoyed having Alan out here um, uh, a year ago. I, th it's, I think it's a year ago at this time. Yeah. So anyway, we support that ministry, Chosen People Ministry, and it's going to be a great opportunity. So, okay. Oh, God. <laughs> I thought I was closer. All right. Psalm 34. Lord, we pray that you would teach us as we continue our way through the Psalms, Lord. Thank you for leading Nate and I as we read through the Psalms, that you give us a specific Psalm that you want us to teach on each week, Lord, and pray that tonight as we look at this Psalm from David, another Psalm from David, Lord, that you would give us instruction and encourage us by your word, Lord. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this particular psalm, you'll see it has an introduction, and not all of the psalms have introductions, but this one does. The introduction is, is that it's a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Ahimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. So, if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21, so that we can kind of look at the, the background of that. I'll remind you that in Psalm 20, I'm, I'm sorry, did I say Psalm? 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 21. In 1 Samuel 20, remember Jonathan was feeling bad for David because of the way his father Saul had been treating uh, David. And, and David told Jonathan, you know, he's, he wants to kill me. And uh, Jonathan just didn't believe it. And so they set up this whole thing, remember, he says, well, you know, I'm going to meet with my dad, I'll talk to my dad, You'll, we'll see how things go, um, we'll have this kind of thing between us, I'll take a young lad with me, I'll go out and I'll, I'll shoot some arrows. Uh, if everything's okay, you know, I'll make that clear to you, if it's not okay, uh, I'll make that clear to you as well. And of course, in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel... We see David saying to the young lad, he cries out, it says, make haste, hurry, do not delay. And of course, that was a message not to the lad retrieving the arrows, but to David. David, go. My father, when I, talk, when I brought you up, my father tried to pin me to a wall, uh, with uh, the wall with the sword. So David flees, chapter 21. Chapter 21, he flees, and he goes to the tabernacle there, he talks to the priest, Ahimelech, not to be confused with Abimelech uh, from Psalm 34. And he says, have you any food? Of course, the priest is confused. You know, David, why are you alone? Where, where's all the fighting men? What's going on here? David lies. Uh, he says he's on a special mission. Um, he says, do you have any bread? Five loaves, you know. The priest says, no, we don't, I don't have any bread, any common bread. We do have the holy bread or the show bread. Remember, every Sabbath, they would take 12 loaves, uh, these flat loaves, and they would lay them on the table of show bread, and the 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And so the priest said, you know, I could give these to you as long as the men that are with you, if they've abstained from sexual relations, no women. And David makes a comment, yeah, you know, there's been no women. I was thinking, remember, he was married to Michael at this time, and um, the relations were probably not real close because of the conflict between David and, and Saul and all of that. But you get to the end of chapter 21, and, and David flees. In verse 10, it says, Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, or Abimelech, same person, the king of Gath. Now, I left out a part. Remember when David was talking to the priest, asking if there was any bread, he also asked, are there any weapons here? And the priest says, well, no, there's no weapon. There's just one weapon that's a sort of Gath, uh, a sort of Goliath from Gath, whom you have killed, you know. His sword's over there. It's wrapped up. You could take that one. And David says, oh, there's none like it, you know. And I can imagine that Goliath's sword was probably a bit larger than your average sword because though we do not have the size of his sword, we do have the size of his spear. We're told that the, just the, the head of his spear was 15 pounds. We're, we're told that the, the male that he would wear was 125 pounds. Think of that, wearing that and then being able to move. Um, you know, we're, we're told... Uh, that his weapons, of course, to fit this giant of a man were obviously a larger size. So David takes that sword. So keep that in mind. He has the sword of Goliath from Gath. And of all places to flee, he flees to Gath. It doesn't make sense. Or does it? And the servants of Achish said to him, Listen, is this not David the king of the land? Did you catch that? Was he the king of the land? No. He was not the king of the land. He had been anointed to be the king, but he would not be the king until Saul was removed. He was not the king of Israel. And yet the enemies of Israel assumed that he was the king of the land. And this is why. Did they not sing of him to one another in dance? in dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness uh, before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched at the doors of the gate, let his saliva run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then David, of course, flees. And apparently he writes this psalm to commemorate that time. You know, guys, when I look at this psalm, I can't help it. I'm not saying that David wrote it this way, but I, I can't help just reading it, just looking at it, pondering it. I can't help but think that the first 10 verses are really devotional. David, he's just, he's writing and he's remembering and he's reflecting upon the faithfulness of God. And then the remainder you know, from verses 11 on down, though there were no verses, of course, when David wrote this, they become instructional. Um, and we'll see that, and I'll point that out when we get to it, but it's almost as if David, at, at a point, he kind of sits down his, his mighty men, and we'll see them in a little bit as well. And it's almost as if he says, now listen up, guys, I have something to teach you. But in verse 1, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. As I was reading through this psalm yesterday, especially in the devotional part of the psalm, or what I see as the devotional part of the psalm, I couldn't help but, but see the 
different references to the things that come out of your mouth. It's almost as if he was really focused on what's coming from his mouth, and what's coming from his mouth is what was in his heart. He had a heart of gratitude. And so, of course, the praise that came from his mouth was the fruit of that. So he says in verse 2, My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Um, look, at, <laughs> the humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, and then he invites others, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I was thinking of how, you know, most church services, um, I guess you have the exception to the rule. You have uh, maybe the Church of Christ. I don't know if they still hold to this, but they used to no instruments and, you know, kind of the worship aspect in song maybe was downplayed. But in most churches, it's interesting how we begin. We begin uh, with an opening prayer. We begin with the time of worship. Wednesday nights, of course, everything's cut so much shorter because of time. But um, why do we do that? Why do, why do we start with worship? Um, there was a time in the history of this church where we started out with a song, and then I would do the message, and then we would end. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was quite a long time ago. We, we ended with a longer worship. So it was kind of like the worship followed the teaching of the word. And we did that for a while just to kind of try it out. I really prefer the longer worship up front. It, to me, it gets my mind, my heart in the right place. Um, I'm not thinking about, you know, anything else. I'm not thinking about people around me. I'm not thinking about even what I'm going to be teaching. My focus is on the Lord. It's amazing how uh, many times the Lord will speak to me. I, I hope and I believe he's probably speaking to you as well. But there are many times that the Lord will be speaking to me even as I'm worshiping him. And he'll even redirect um, the focus of the teaching. And, um, you know, I feel bad for the folks that come and sit through both services because it must be tedious to listen to me that much. But those who do, they, they can recognize, they see it. They, they'll see that, boy, that, that second service went a different direction. Same text, different direction. Not that, you know, we're playing with the text. We're just maybe now focusing on something more at this time than at the, the time before. And I think that that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's the fruit of, of just um, sitting before the Lord and magnifying the Lord you know, and, and praising the Lord, and again, getting our focus, getting our eyes off of ourself, and getting it fixed on the Lord. In verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. David, you know, again, the backdrop, oh, I remember when I, I went to Gath, I went to Gath with the sword of, of Goliath. I mean, how do you hide the sword of Goliath? Did he have it on his, hanging from his side? You know, I have no idea. You know, and, and there he is. And, and, and when did it set in that, you know, maybe this wasn't a good idea? I want to remind you guys that David, in the future from this point in time, went back to the city of Gath with his mighty men. Achish was gone. He was no longer alive. His son was reigning. And, um, and of course, they, they hooked up with the Philistines, remember, and they went out uh, on these, uh, you know, attacks, except when it came to attacking Israel, then they kind of would weasel out of it or, you know. And, uh, of course, they used this to deceive uh, the Philistines and, and to you know, eventually conquered them, you know. But it's interesting that David thought that this would even be a good idea. Have you ever been in a place where maybe, you know, you, you feel like, boy, things aren't going well. I'm in a real jam. And you have the kind of flight 
thing. It's time to run, time to go. And uh, I think of the early years of my walk with Jesus, and and um, I think of times when I remember one time I was you know as a carpenter and and uh, we had this fellow who had come to the church. He was a a developer. He had moved from the East Coast, and um, he wanted to build these very upscale homes, kind of East Coast style homes. The um, what are they? I, I don't remember the name. I remembered back then, but you know the houses with no eaves. You know the the typical East Coast homes. You know, kind of the salt block type of homes, and and um, and so we were building some homes with him. And anyway, I, I ended up I I got fired from the job, and uh, it was so hard because I got fired from uh, my best friend the guy that was instrumental in leading me to the Lord. And the reason he let me go is because he had his brother-in-law on the job and he hired this other guy who was a, um, a ace framer, according to him. He hadn't framed, he hadn't been in construction for 15 years, but he was an ace framer. You know. and, and those two guys were, you know, kind of, Bickering and who was going to be the lead. Both of them thought that they were going to be the lead on the job. And um, so I was the casualty. I was the casualty on one day. The next day, his brother-in-law was the casualty. As he was driving by and I saw him, I lived down the street. And I said, where are you going? He goes, I'm going home back up to Sandy, Idaho, you know. I'm going home. I said, what happened? He goes, I'm not working on that job. That's going to be a nightmare. And he laughed. But I remember feeling like, oh, man, what now? What now? And we could have just made it, but we ran. We ran back to California, you know. We, we went back. I thought, oh, it's just so hard, you know, the work and everything. Let's go back to Santa Barbara. And, and we moved back to Santa Barbara. We were there for exactly a year to the very week. The week that we arrived, we moved that week uh, back to uh, Northern California. And, you know, I felt like a complete loser running and, you know, here I am and now I'm in Santa Barbara and I, I'm having a hard time finding, you know, carpentry work. I mean, Santa Barbara with all this building moratoriums and everything. And uh, anyway, but the Lord used it. And I was thinking of David. David, what in the world were you thinking? Why would you go to Gath? But the Lord used it. The Lord used it in David's life. The Lord used it in David's heart. He was scared. And, and yet, you know, as he was delivered from this bad situation, he came away from it with this praise just flowing from his heart and his mouth, his lips. He says in verse 5, they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. And then again, speaking of himself, he says, this poor man cried out, the Lord heard him. He cried out, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. I think, was it the last time I taught? Um... What psalm was it? 124? Was that the last time I talked? Anyway, um, and it was a short teaching, and then I asked you guys, you know, fill in the blank or, or finish the sentence if it had not been for the Lord. And some of you, you know, filled that in. You just kind of shared different testimonies of different times in your life or a time in your life when the Lord was so faithful to you and delivered you and you know, the encouragement that you received from that. In verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord. Now, you'll note in your Bible, it says angel. There's a note, or it says angel. Angel. I, I missed. It says angel, or it says angel. Do you see the difference? 
It says angel, lowercase a, or it could refer to the angel of the Lord, uppercase a. The uppercase a, angel of the Lord, you know, we see in the Old Testament would be a theophany or Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord. And David, was he referring to that when he, when he wrote this? The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivered them. And then he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. You know, um, I am so excited. It's funny how I seem to be excited about things that I'm not involved in at all. But, I, but I'm excited in them. I'm always excited in the women's ministry and the things that they're doing. And, the, and I'm excited in this foundations class. Um, I came down on Sunday. Uh, Nate had asked if I would maybe just say a few words. And so I just encouraged the folks. But I was just so blown away by how many people were here for that foundations class. And... Um, and I was I was blessed by the excitement of of some of the people, you know. I was standing in the back back there, and Nate, Pastor Nate, said, uh, "You know, go ahead and get your workbook, and you know, there's a Bible up there for you, and these types of things." And some of the ladies, um, you know, they're they're grabbing their stuff, and they kind of got to these new Thompson chain. Bibles, which is going to be a great tool. That was uh, that was the um, surprise or the gift that Nate got for the the folks that are participating in that, and it is a wonderful uh, tool. But they were so blown away. They said these as well, and I said, "Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a gift. That's going to help you out a lot." And I was so encouraged by that because this is the process of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It's not just experience. People who base their walk with Jesus on mere experience will have a shallow faith because all they're basing it upon is what they're feeling or what they're experiencing at any given time without the backdrop, really, of what the scriptures teach. Those who have a foundation based upon the word of God will have, a, will have a strong foundation. Their roots will go down deep. They're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I was talking to Nehemiah upstairs right before coming down, and I said, so what are you teaching tonight? And he says, oh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He goes, you know that portion of scripture where uh, Paul uses the Old Testament, some of these Old Testament examples, that these are examples for you. And he, he was telling me, he says, I'm excited about it. I'm going to be going back to the Old Testament, so we're going to be looking at these examples so that we can connect the dots. And we were just talking about it upstairs. I said, you know, buddy, that's what's so important. There's so many people because, you know, you kind of you get into a Christian environment and we kind of have our Christian lingo, you know, and we get used terms and, and everything, and, and people kind of nod like they know or they understand what's going on. But if we don't go back to understand really the, the root of, of where this is coming from, you know, it's going to be this limited understanding. I, I was telling him that I was listening to a, a pastor that we know, and, and he was answering some questions. And one of the questions that was asked, this person sent the question in, um, can I plead the blood of Jesus over my car and over the road and over my house and over, you know, this type of thing? And you, you hear this in some circles of Christianity. Plead the blood of Jesus. And so uh, David said, um, well, let's understand <laughs> what the term means. And he says, I'm going to say something that might make some angry. He says, the blood of Jesus was not magical. The blood of Jesus spoke of his death. It's not magic blood. 
He says, when the Romans scourged him and the blood was splattered on those Roman soldiers or that Roman, you know, scourger, you know, he would have been saved if it was the blood. Or the one who pierced the, the side of Jesus, you know, into the heart and the blood and water flowed from his body and no doubt the fellow was splattered with the blood of Jesus. That fellow would have been saved if it was a matter of, of, of claiming or, or that type of thing. He says it speaks of, and so then he goes back, and that's what he's doing. He's helping the person connect the dots, see? So this is why, you know, we, we read, um, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You look at the whole sacrificial system, you know, lambs and goats for poor people, turtle doves, you know, pigeons, types of things. What's the picture? The picture is sin is very serious. Sin leads to death. There's blood involved in death. It's gruesome. It's, it's, it's serious. It's a serious matter. So you have this understanding. You have this understanding of, of, of what sin does. You know, Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. We see this in, in Genesis, you know, chapter, chapter 3. The wages of sin is death. Then Jesus comes upon the scene in his incarnation. And one of the very first titles that we see Jesus given by John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, you look at the book of Revelation and John is caught up to heaven and he hears, uh, behold the Lamb of, or behold the line of the tribe of Judah. He turns around to see this mighty line of the tribe of Judah. And what does he see? A lamb as if it was slain. And so it's important that we have this biblical understanding so that our roots, so our faith goes down deep. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Again, we don't trust in him. You have a shallow faith. If it's just, you know, well, you know, the, my car started today, so I trust in him. Well, what if it doesn't start tomorrow? Do you trust in him tomorrow? See, this is part of growing. This is part of maturing. I gave the example of, you know, uh, when I was a young Christian and, oh, the bottom's falling out. We need to run back to Southern California. Well, things will work there, you know. Let's run. Let's run. Well, hopefully, you know, as you grow and you mature in your faith, you realize that running is not the answer. Well, running is always the answer if you're running to him. You know, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Give me wisdom on this situation, Lord. Rather than just looking for the quick fix, the remedy, you know, that's going to fix the whole thing. And so we taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter wrote the same thing, similar thing. Verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lion lacks and suffers hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So that first part, as I look at it, I just kind of think well, it's, it's devotional, at least from my perspective. And then the part that remains, it's like a sermon. He says, come you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of of the Lord. Well, keep your finger there, and if you, if you want to, you don't have to, but if you want to turn back to 1 Samuel in chapter 22, 1 Samuel in chapter 22, following this encounter in Gath, in chapter 22 and verse 1, it says, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they, they went down there to him. And then verse 2 is where we see <laughs> where, where these men, you know, the Bible refers to them later on as David's mighty men. Verse 2, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. 
So Psalm 34. I must imagine David sitting down, his mighty men, which, by the way, they were not mighty men. When he, when he first met them, they were discouraged. They were broke. They were grumpy. I mean, they were, they were probably the kind of men that say, we don't have anything else going. Why not? And, uh, and they gathered to him, but of course, the Lord used these men. Their loyalty to David is something that really stands out in the Bible. It is an example to us, you know, being loyal friends and, and uh, loyal family members and so on and so forth. I mean, you look at David's mighty men. They loved him so much. They really did honor this man, you know, risking their own life to go so that they might draw water from the well that David drank from as a boy. And, uh, you know, because David said, oh, that I could drink some of that water now, you know. I mean, you just got to admire these fellows. But I almost picture going back to Psalm 34. David said, come, you children, listen to me. You might say, oh, would he call them children? Remember when Jesus called his disciples children? John chapter 21. <laughs> They're out fishing. Children, have you got any food? Have you got any fish? Children. David. You know, guys, <laughs> David, he's minding his own business, taking care of his father's flocks. Samuel, the prophet, really one of the greatest prophets who ever lived before John the Baptist. He comes to anoint one of Jesse's sons. He doesn't know which one. He goes through all of them. He's convinced. I mean, you know, just because you're a prophet doesn't mean you get everything right. And even Samuel, you know, he thought, oh, you know, David's first son, look at this guy, man. He's got, he's got the looks. He's got the strength. He's got the, he's got the king qualities, you know. This has got to be him. Nope. Nope. Nope, you know, <laughs> you know, Samuel's confused, you know, Jesse, is there anyone else? I mean, what's, what's going on? I know that the Lord sent me here. Oh, there's David. I mean, it's almost like David wasn't even thought of. Like, why would we call David in? David surely isn't going to be considered for this role. David comes in and the Spirit of God speaks to Samuel. This is him. He anoints him. Time goes by. Three of David, three of Jesse's sons are battling the Philistines, and Jesse sends David with some cheese and some bread, some supplies for the sons and also for the captain. Their captain and and uh, David's there when Goliath comes down. I mean, this has been happening for forty days. Goliath comes out, this giant, he taunts the people. They're shaking in their sandals, you know. And, and David just has this sense of courage that comes over him. And this disdain for this giant who's really mocking his God. I mean, that's how David saw it. He's not mocking you guys. He's mocking our God. And, of course, we know the whole encounter. And so David, so you have Goliath the giant and little David. Now, he wasn't little David because he was a little boy. He wasn't a little boy. He was little David in comparison to big Goliath. And, of course, he, you know, does what he does. He takes off the head of Goliath, and he becomes a national hero that day. As we read earlier, you know, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. Did David kill tens of Did David really kill more people than Saul? No. 
But because of this battle, because of this great victory that came, that was attributed to what David did. It wasn't like David was out slaying all of these people. In fact, it seemed that David just kind of took care of Goliath and then went on his way. So he becomes a national hero, and he lives happily ever after, right? No, he doesn't live happily ever after. There's conflict, there's difficulty. Why am I pointing this out? Because there is this deceptive mentality within the church that, you know, it's almost as if come to Jesus and then you live happily ever after. There's never any affliction, there's never any hardship, there's never any lack, there's never any difficulties. You know, when David, he, he's, he's giving praise to the Lord. And, and he says, oh, fear the Lord, verse 9 again, oh, fear the Lord, you saints. There is no want or lack for those who fear him. Well, David was in lack. David was in want when he went to the tabernacle to get bread. He needed food and he needed a weapon. But the point that David was making, obviously, is the Lord's faithfulness. See, guys, if, if, we, if we present this silly, in my opinion, disgusting view of Christianity, it sets people up for failure. Because people think that the Lord always, there always has to be a miracle. There's a miracle around every corner. And you listen to some people, and they act as if there is a miracle around every corner, and they're lying. Because the fact of the matter is, is that as Christians, we go through some difficult times. You know, I, I, this isn't a boo-hoo moment, and I've shared this at different times, but, but I think of how, you know, growing up, uh, my, my, my dad... Loved my dad, you know. We had just four in our family. Um, our dad took care of us. Our dad, uh, you know, we, we had all the toys and all of that. He was a, you know, good guy. He was not a believer, but he was a good guy. And, um, and I was close to my dad. Um, my, my mother was a disciplinarian. My father was not. When my dad stepped in, then it was scary. Because he, he normally didn't do that. It just wasn't him, you know. She would usually take care. My mother never said, wait till your father gets home, ever. <laughs> Sometimes I wish we could have waited for your father to get home. <laughs> but I become a Christian, and immediately it's almost as if there has been this, this wall, this brick wall that's been built between my father and I, this animosity. It was the strangest thing for me. I could not understand it. I, you know, I, I've told this story of, you know, what we would go down and we would visit, and my father would just mock me in front of my friends. You know, our house was kind of like the party house before I got saved. You know, we would go down, and, and all of our friends would come out. They'd come out to the coast. My parents lived in La Costa, and... And so my friends would come out to visit us. So they'd spend the weekend, you know, so they could be with us. And, and there would be drinking and, you know, the, the, the jacuzzi and the pool table and, you know, just all the stuff. And that was kind of the place to go. And we'd surf, you know, uh, when we were down and stuff like that. And, and once I became a Christian, um, my father would just kind of take those opportunities and he would just kind of call me out, and he'd make fun of the fact that I was born again. So tell us, Danny, what does that mean even, you know? And he'd kind of taunt, he would taunt to me. And it was so hard because it was my father. If it was someone else, I would say, yeah, you know, not losing sleep over this. But because it was my dad, it was a hard thing. And he was out of sh been out of shape because I'm sharing the gospel with him and, and his pride, you know, he didn't want to, you know, I, he's the father, I'm the son. Y son doesn't tell the father anything, you know. You, I, I know how it goes, you know. I've raised you right type of thing. 
And and I remember, you know, uh, you know, Lord, why does my dad hate me? Why does my dad hate me? And the Lord, I don't hear these audible voices from the Lord. That's another thing. People pretend that they are always got this hotline to the Lord. You know, if you're a person like that, you have to realize that even believers, they look at you with suspicion because they live in the real world just like you do. And they know the rarity. It happens. Don't get me wrong. It happens that the Lord speaks to his people individually. But it is so rare. It's not an everyday thing. Look at Abraham. He hears from the Lord in 25 years of silence. Until the next message comes. It's a long time, Lord. But I felt that the Lord was saying, he doesn't hate you, Danny. He hates me in you. And it was so difficult, so hard. And, you know, we, we go through difficulties. Christian parents, we have prodigal children. Christian parents agonize, I think, more than non-Christian parents. Because, you know, when I was growing up, I could party. And my parents had no problem with it. As long as I didn't cross the line doing this, doing that type of thing. But I had a lot of, man, I, I did a lot of things. And even if my parents didn't condone it, they never came down on me. But raising my children, for Tracy and I, we had a higher standard because... You know, we were followers of Jesus, our followers of Jesus. We wanted our children to follow Jesus. And when there was a season when some of them were not following Jesus, we agonized over that. Christian parents know the pain of having a prodigal more than a non-believer could ever know. But Christians, we, we suffer. I was reading, Nate had put two letters from two of the pastors we support in India. And I was reading their letters today. And one of the pastors, you know, just trying to plant a church and just the struggles and the hardships and the difficulties and then being bullied, you know, after, you know, it seems like the Lord's opening a door. Oh, he's changed his mind. Now we could rent this place. And, and now here comes the opposition. This is reality. This is what Christians deal with it's not this happily ever after in fact I'm convinced that it's the difficulties that cause the praise to flow Christian parents have children that get sick sometimes they die we've had you know some of the hardest thing things we've dealt with as a church is when we've 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 wept with those who have lost children young children. I'm glad that we haven't had many of those. But I'll tell you, when that happens, it sticks with you. It's, it's a heavy, heavy thing. I think, I think I'm just constantly trying to come against this fantasy Christianity because it leaves people high and dry and it, and it leaves, it, it deceives people and it discourages people. Because people began to think something's wrong because I'm not being blessed the way these other people say that they're blessed every day. Why am I going through hardships? Why am I lacking? Why is there difficulty? See? But here's the thing, guys. You know, I, I could... Now, you say, Dan, are you taking away from what David says? No, not at all. Not at all. Oh, fear the Lord, his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lion lacks and suffers hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. The person whose roots, whose faith go deep in the Lord, we come to the conclusion in our life, the Lord is faithful. The Lord has delivered me out of all of my difficulties. It's perspective. So you never went through any hardships? Oh, no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying the Lord has been victorious. Even what seemed to be defeats for us ended up being victories because of the grace of God. Because God gives us the, the, the purpose for the thing and the meaning for the thing or at least the grace upon grace upon grace to accept the thing and to say, Lord, I don't understand it now, but I know that one day I will. Verse 12, who is the man who desires life and loves many days? Here's the instruction. Look at it. He says, <laughs> he says, Watch your words. Who is a man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. David says, hey, maybe he's saying to his mighty men, listen, guys, I have something to say. Watch your words. Watch your words. And then he goes on in verse 14, watch your walk. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Watch your words. Watch your walk. And then he goes on to say, in essence, watch your works. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut the remembrance of them from the earth. It's instruction. Watch your words. Watch, watch your walk. I mean, I, you know, I, all these, you know, I, I'm thinking of Ephesians. I, I'm thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of all these New Testament epistles that, that the authors inspired by the Holy Spirit dealt with all of these things. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. There it is again. The Lord is near to those who have a broken, watch your heart. The Lord is near to those who have a broken uh, heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. It's not the faker. It's not the liar. It's not the one prouncing around on the stage proclaiming, you know, I think of, uh, boy, it's been so long since I've seen the guy. I don't even know if he's still living. Price. Name and claim it. He would prounce around his round stage. I think his church was in Los Angeles. And he would say, cancer cannot come into me. And he would just pronounce these things. And it was shortly after that his wife was diagnosed with cancer. And my heart went out for this woman. And I said, gosh. And I would say to Tracy, that poor woman is married to this man. It's so boldly, you know, like he's got so much faith that cancer cannot come into his body. What arrogance there is. I mean, it really, it's, it's just, it's so silly. It's so disgusting. So what are you saying? Your wife didn't have enough faith? That's why cancer came into her body? I, I, I am sickened. I, I really am. I, I think it's apparent by the way I, I, I touch on this. But I am sickened by people like this because they do not rightly represent Christ. Jesus says, count the cost of following me. What's the cost? Well, I don't have a place to lay my head. Kenneth Copeland would say, well, it's because, you know, he was away from his mansion in Jerusalem or up in the Galilee, you know, his lakefront home. You talk about reading into a text. Where do you even get that? You see, Jesus, he's meek and he's humble and he... And, and, and yet he came, and, and that's what's so wonderful, the contrast between the incarnation and the life that he lived 
and, and, and the meekness and all, and, and compared to the greatness of who he is, when, when the three saw him transfigured, his glory manifested, you go, oh, Lord, your greatness. Your greatness in what? Because I pronounce myself as king. I am the head, not the tail. No, because you are the king. And you came humbly as a servant, as the least, as the youngest, as the less. How wonderful, how beautiful. I mean, when you, when you, when you see that, it just, it just gives you such a, well, I, I got to finish verse 19. Look at in case in case you say, you know, Dan, you're reading it. The fact of the matter is, is that you, if we really have faith, there's not going to be any afflictions. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. <laughs> and we should say amen to that because it's true. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. You know, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I think of how many times in my life when I, I thought to myself, you know, this is how it's going to end. This is how it's going to end. This is how it's going to end. Well, it hasn't ended. And it didn't end that way. And so he does deliver us. But it's through the hardships. It's through the difficulties. He guards his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous shall be condemned, held guilty. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned, held guilty. You know, the Psalms are full of prophecy. And I think it's going to be wonderful when we get home to heaven and we have this full understanding to realize uh, how much we missed <laughs> reading the scripture. Oh, God, I didn't see that one. I missed that one. That, that was good. That's wonderful, Lord. When I read that, none of his bones are broken. I know I'm reading into it, probably. But what if it's prophetic? Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was his bones broken? No. How do you know? He's the Lamb of God. What does that mean? Go back to the root of it. <laughs> Go back to Exodus. See the instructions concerning the Lamb of God. I think, you know, you look at the, the two crucified on each side of him, and they broke their knees, kneecaps, you know, and, and uh, to kind of hurry up the process of death. And, and, of course, when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead, and so that's why they, they pierced him in the side, just to make sure, you know. And, but, again, this was a fulfillment of, of Bible prophecy. Guys, the Lord is doing something marvelous in the hearts of people. Um, and I, I think that he's doing something marvelous in our little fellowship. I think that um, I'm excited about this foundations class. And I, I hope that for the students, for the folks that come out to that, I hope they continue with it. I hope that they give themselves to it. Because um, you're going to grow in the word. And there is this settling that happens. You know, I, again, as I've been ranting about these pretenders and everything, I surely don't want to sound like I've arrived. But there is, there is fruit 
of longevity. Not perfection, because none of us are perfect, but of longevity. I'm not going anywhere, Lord. Where could I go? You have the words of life. Where am I going to go? And you just remain. You continue. You, you just settle down. I, you know, I'm not running. I'm, I'm not going to this. I'm not going back to that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to keep moving forward. It, I, it's the, it just seems dark right now, Lord, for me. I don't understand it. But by faith, I'm just going to keep walking forward. And the Lord just kind of settles us. I don't know. Did David write this psalm right after the event? Or did he write it years later? Did he write it a decade later? He's older now. He's thinking upon it. And he's saying, the Lord delivered me out of all my troubles. You know, when he's young and he's on the run and he's fretting, and it says he was very much afraid. David was not, you know, saying, oh, no, I'll just fake this one through. He's very much afraid of Achish. When he was young and kind of wrestling with all these things and his faith and everything, would he have had a different perspective if he would have sat down and wrote Psalm 34? Was it written later? Did his faith settle? Did he see the faithfulness of God? You know, guys, the world is going bonkers and we have the answer and we have the remedy for a troubled heart. It's Jesus. And the Lord is wants to raise up people, you know, that really have a heart for the word of God. And... Uh, it's amazing. This is what I found, that if we show even the smallest interest, and this is why I'm always trying to encourage people, even the smallest interest, you know, Lord, I, I really want to know your word. You know, there's a goal at the end of it. It's, it's, to me, it just seems like the Lord just kind of fans that into a flame and says, that's what I want for you too. I want you to know my word. I want you to know how to handle my word. You know, on Sunday, we had this fellow who said he was Jesus, and I know that he said that to a lot of you, that you guys were Jesus. And he came up and was talking to Tracy and I, and he told Tracy that she was Jesus, and she looked right at him and said, I'm not Jesus. And then he said to me, I'm Jesus. I said, I'm not Jesus. And then he quoted a scripture to back up his, you know, proclamation and I said you're a heretic that's not what that scripture teaches you're not Jesus I thought it was ironic because at the second service which was different than the first service the second service I was really amplifying on the greatness of Christ I just kind of went off I mean the topic you know wasn't there, but I kind of went off and talked about the, just the marvelous wonder of Jesus and how it's not about us, it's about him and these type of things. And then you have this fellow that comes up and says he's Jesus. You see, how ironic is that? There are some people who shouldn't, it's like putting a gun in a child's hand. And sadly, there are a lot of people like that. They don't know how to handle the word of God. There are some people who don't know, Paul says, you know, he's speaking of those who bought into Judaism, the legalizers, you know. You got to do this. You got to be circumcised. You got to keep the Sabbath. You got to do this. You got to do that. And Paul, who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, don't listen to them. They're liars. Who's bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to perfect, you know? And he just rebukes them. Circumcision, cut the flesh, cut the flesh, cut the flesh. Paul says, I wish they would cut themselves off. I mean, it was a play on words. He was being very blunt. People, oh, that's so rude. No, it was so direct. Because, see, Paul said, you are people that should not even handle you don't even know how to handle the law. You don't even know how to use the law. So you shouldn't be teaching the law. 
And there are some people, they shouldn't even be, you know, you, you, like that fellow, you know, he's building this whole thing up in one verse. And, um, you know, you just think, man, you should not even be, because he's obviously getting the same reaction from everyone he talks to. Any Christian's going to say, you're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. What are you talking about? But he keeps it up. So there will be deception in the last days. And we need to, we need to ready ourselves for what's coming, uh, you know, and, and just ready ourselves for the day, the moment in which we live. We need to be people who know the word of God. We know how to handle the word of God. We know how to give a reason, a reason for the hope that lies within us. That's this. We know the reason. This is what the word says. This is what the word says about Jesus. This is what the word says about redemption. This is what the word says about, you know, a life lived in Christ by the spirit of Christ and so on and so forth. So we need that because we need, um, how will they hear unless someone preaches it to them, you know, if someone proclaims it to them. And, and I'm telling you, the Lord is doing something right now. I think it's marvelous. One by one, he's dealing with these false teachers. I wish we'd deal with all of them at the same time. But he is, he is exposing them, exposing them for what they are. And only the fool would continue to follow and to send their money and to mimic the things that are coming out of these men's and women's mouth because they are heretics. And they would know that if they knew the word of God. So Father, help us. Give us a love for your word. 